You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday for worship at 8.30 or 10.45. Find out more at asburybosier.org. Good morning. It's good to be with you as we continue our series called Savior, as we look at six different portraits of the cross and, and what it means. Our scripture lesson today comes from Leviticus, the 16th chapter, beginning with the 11th verse. It'll be on the screens, it'll be online, and it's also in your Bible. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall slaughter the bull as a sin offering for himself. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of crushed sweet incense, and he shall bring it inside the curtain and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the covenant, or he will die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat, and before the mercy seat, he he shall sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. He shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the curtain and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the sanctuary because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins, and so he shall do for the tent of meeting which remains with them in the midst of their uncleanness. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Around 1846, Inez Swemelweiss, say that 10 times fast, began working at one of two obstetrical clinics in Vienna. He discovered that the mothers who delivered at the first clinic had a higher infant mortality rate than mothers who delivered at the second clinic. The difference was stark and was recognized. He began to study his own daily routine as well as the routine of the doctors and the nurses, trying to figure out what the difference between the two clinics was. And what he discovered was doctors were being trained at the first clinic, whereas midwives were being trained at the second. And part of the doctor's education was working with cadavers. And what he discovered is that there was contamination happening when doctors who would work on cadavers would then help deliver children. So he came up with a radical idea and a radical plan to encourage the doctors to wash their hands. And once the doctors in training began washing their hands, the infant mortality rate was comparably the same between the two clinics. Even so, doctors were skeptical of his innovation, and he spent a portion of his career frustrated at why folks would not do something so simple that would save so many lives. This story is a metaphor representing what's called the expiation atonement theory, which is a fancy way of saying Jesus cleanses us of our sin. It's like the 51st Psalm, that great poem attributed to King David after recognizing his own arrogance and his own sin for taking Bathsheba 
as his own. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Take me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Incorporating Psalm 51 into your daily prayer routine is a great check on the soul. Magre de Vega, who wrote Savior, the, the series, which is what our sermon series is based on, said that daily he recognizes his own halt, H-A-L-T. And he says that temptation is very difficult to resist when we are either hungry or angry or lonely or tired. He says it's important to recognize these things throughout our day. After meditating on King David, he actually, he added the letter S to his halt so that it's halts, the S standing for success. Eventually, King David united the kingdom of Israel under one banner. He brought in the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and he started to relax a bit, a bit got very full of himself to the point where he started taking things that didn't belong to him, Bathsheba included. Unfortunately, the story of David and Bathsheba is unremarkable because today the powerful continue to prey upon those who they deem powerless. But what is remarkable or what is of note is David's own remorse. Wash me thoroughly, he writes this and traditionally writes this in the 51st Psalm. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Though his acknowledgement of what he did could have gone farther and could have been more definitive, it is exceedingly rare for kings and rulers to admit any kind of fault, especially one with such magnitude. Give me a clean heart. When we hear that word heart in the Hebrew scriptures, it means the seat of intelligence and emotion, the center of our being. The heart was understood actually to be more important than the head. They weren't quite sure what to do with the gray matter between our ears, but the heart was always working, was always pumping. When we became anxious or inspired, it pumped faster. When we became calm, it started to pump slower. And eventually, when we breathe our last, it stops altogether. So give me a clean heart means a wholesale transformation of who we are. It's like when Jesus offered to wash Peter's feet. Peter says, wash, wash all of me, Lord. Wash all of me. The Levitical Code reveals how the Israelites understood what this cleansing meant, the cleansing of the soul, cleansing of the heart. The high priest, Aaron, would enter into the tabernacle and later the temple on the Day of Atonement. He would sacrifice a bull for his own sin and his family's sin. And then he would take two goats. One goat would be sacrificed, much like the bull. A second goat was called the scapegoat where they would tie a crimson cord either around the horns or around the neck of the goat. And then the goat would be sent out into the wilderness as a sign of the people's sin being tossed away, being forgotten, never to be seen again. 
As the New Testament authors started meditating on Jesus and what it means for Jesus to have been a sacrifice on the cross, they began to write about Jesus as a scapegoat. Hebrews chapter 9 says this, But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offers himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worshiping the living God? Or, as Flannery O'Connor puts it, Dear God, I cannot love thee the way that I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow, and keeps me from seeing all of the moon. The crescent is very beautiful, and perhaps that is all one like I am, should or could see. But what I am afraid of, dear God, is that myself will shadow the whole moon, and I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. Please help me push myself aside. Make my mind clear. Make it clean. Jesus taking our sin like a blood sacrifice, might seem like an archaic practice, but it does follow Embezzi's law. Do you know Embezzi's law? Well, we know Murphy's law, which is anything that can go wrong will, right? Story of ministry. Embezzi's law is in order for something to be clean, something else must become dirty. And, who, and, and we understand this. It's, it's tangible. It's practical. Your car is dirty. The bucket of water is clean, and at the end, the car is clean, and the bucket of water is dirty. Or in the house, you, know, you, you clean, the, the, the kitchen is dirty, the, the mop bucket is there, it starts as clean, but afterwards the kitchen is clean, the mop bucket is dirty, you're looking at the, you, know, you kind of want to throw up a little bit after looking at the water that you've just cleaned. In order to be made clean, something else must be made dirty. It's tangible, it's something that that we can hold on to. The same is true for the expiation model, the Jesus cleansing us model. Christ, who was sinless, takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the agnus dei, the lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice for imperfect people. It's a beautiful metaphor when we reflect on the ways in which that we have fallen short, the times that we have turned away, maybe even done things that we regret. This model shows us there is nothing too dirty. There's nothing too broken that Christ can't put back together. Of course, as we've been doing the last couple of weeks, all metaphors fall apart at a certain point, and the expiation model is not immune. Much like the ransom theory that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that seems to suggest that 
good and evil is equally powered forces that are in this grudge match over the human soul, making it sound like God has to pay a price and Jesus is the ransom of this price. The expiation model suggests that something has to die in order for something else to live. And that makes God out to be very small, bound by some kind of equation that has to balance out, that God too is somehow bound by Embezzi's law. And if this is the only model that you have heard in terms of the cross, taken to the extreme, it leads one to do harm to people or things that we perceive to be imperfect or sinful in order to maintain our own purity. Like burning Harry Potter books because we think witchcraft is going to spread throughout the nation. In my friends in high school, my group of friends, um, I've told this story before, but it's worth bearing repeating. Every Wednesday morning, they would meet at, they, they were a part of, I grew up Methodist um, and am still Methodist, uh, a cradle Methodist. Uh, my friends in high school went to a different denomination, which will remain nameless to protect the guilt, to protect the innocent. But they would meet at the flagpole every Wednesday morning and pray before school. Uh, and I never made it because I had Key Club meeting Wednesday mornings before school. Key Club is the high school version of Kiwanis, right? Uh, or another way I like to explain it is they were praying that God might deliver them a wheelchair ramp while we at Key Club were figuring out how to build it, right? Uh, you, need, you need both of these things. Anyway, uh, well, I, I found out that they started praying for me. Uh, because I didn't wear Jesus t-shirts. I listened to ACDC and The Who. They listened to Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant, and they started praying for my own soul that I might see the light, right? Well, one day, uh, you know, growing up in South Louisiana, uh, you do things like go to Mardi Gras, and I invited them, like, hey, you know, my dad's bringing us, bringing a couple people to Mardi Gras, let's go have a good time, and they said, I am not one of those people. I'm one of those people. What do you mean by that? I'm not one of those people. Well, excuse me. I'm not one of those people. Now, now I understand. I understand keeping temptation at bay. I do understand. And I understand that there's some things that we, we must divorce from ourselves. There are some things that we have to keep at arm's length. And it might sound silly, you know, but uh, for me, uh, at least, I will eat anything that is in front of me. And not only will I eat anything that's in front of me, I will eat all of it. I will make a happy plate every time I sit down at the table. You know, growing up in South Louisiana, uh, there were seafood restaurants everywhere. Well, now living in North Louisiana, there are Mexican restaurants everywhere. And it's not that I don't like Mexican food. It's that when you sit down, what's the first thing that they do? Give you a big old bag, of, a big old bowl of chips, right? Here you go, chips and salsa, right? Uh, and then here's, here's a really cool thing. You know what happens when you finish that bowl of chips? They bring you another one, even without like asking, you know, like, here you go. You know, in other words, if, if they had like bottomless chips and salsa and bottomless Bud Light, you would have to drag me out of the restaurant by my collar, right? There are some things I, I have to keep at, at, at bay, right? 
And of course, during this pandemic, when the gym is closed, but the pantry's open, like voila, and here we are. I understand that you have to keep certain things at bay to keep temptation away. But it's not that, but that, that's my deal. That's not, you know, if someone, you know, don't invite Matt to a Mexican restaurant. You know, he's, he's working on that, right? No, no, that's, it's my problem. It's not, and it's not like I'm going to go out and like burn all Mexican restaurants or like pass laws so that Mexican restaurants can't be built in Bossier, right? That's crazy. Except, except sometimes when we take this model too far to protect our own purity, sometimes crazy things happen. This week, we had a man who's struggling with pornography and killed eight people to, quote, eliminate his temptation. Sometimes we take this whole purity movement too far, where we eliminate even people and things so that we might not have any more struggles. Out of all the models of salvation that we've been talking about, this one, this one is the one that gives me the most pause because I see how often it is misused and misinterpreted. Thinking that the goal of Christianity is to build some kind of purity bubble around ourselves and around our churches, free from any blemish, where we end up not ever hanging out with the people that like Jesus hung out with. Now, there's nothing wrong with creating an environment in which sin begins to lose its grip on us. There's nothing wrong with that. That is at the heart of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. That is at the heart of Wesley's understanding of Christian perfection to where sin no longer has a grip on us through the practices of the church, through prayer and fasting and small groups and study and worship. The problem is, is that sometimes our definition of what is pure and what is not can be terribly wrong. For example, I know I have to keep my, my, my chip and salsa addiction at bay. But gambling, eh, it's just not my thing. I've played the lottery like three times, you know. So, if I go to tamales and it's bottomless chips and bottomless blood light night, you have to drag me out. Uh, bring me to a casino, eh. In and out, fine. It's just not my, it's not my thing. So, if I were to create my own denomination centered around my own struggles and vices, I might forgive gluttony, but want to crucify greed and gambling. And in fact, if you flip through the United Methodist Book of Discipline, if you want some like light reading this afternoon, you know. We, we recommend abstinence from alcohol. We recommend abstinence from tobacco. Gambling is the scourge of society. It's like in the Gospel of Mark. Over and over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, the insiders don't get it. The disciples are always confused. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, and James and John say, well, then appoint us to sit at your right and your left hand when you come into power. And Jesus is like, oy vey, that's not what I'm talking about. 
And then he talks about going to Jerusalem and dying. And Peter says, what are you doing? You can't die on the cross. That'll kill the movement. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I've heard this story before. If you just bow to me, the kingdoms of the world will be yours. Those who do get it in the Gospel of Mark, the Gerasene demoniac, the Gentile who lived on the outskirts of town, who lived in the cemetery, Jairus and Jairus' daughter, the woman who was hemorrhaging for 12 years just touches the cloak of Jesus and is healed. The centurion at the cross, you know, the Gentile soldier of Rome who is actively oppressing Jesus and his people, he's the one who said, surely this man is the son of God. It is a beautiful metaphor of Jesus makes us clean, but if we are not careful, our definition of what is pure and what is impure can be terribly wrong. After all, it is what the gospel of Mark is about. With all of that said, let's hang on to, as we've done in the last couple of weeks, let's hang on to what is beautiful about this metaphor. Jesus is the Agnus Dei. Jesus is the Lamb of God, which is what the Gospel of John is about. The only gospel that mentions that. Jesus is walking along the River Jordan and John looks out and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth. It is Jesus' nickname in the Gospel of John. And this Agnus Dei, this Lamb, takes away my sin, takes away your sin, the sin I struggle with and the sins that we don't understand because it is our neighbor's struggle so that we might rightly stand before God and before one another with love at the center of all that we do. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Gracious and most loving God, we give you thanks for the blood of the Lamb. We give you thanks for Christ's sacrifice in the great eternal temple. Your house not made with hands, but the place that you prepare for us so we might rest in your heart. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within us. so that we might worship you rightly, so that we might love our neighbor well, so that we might know the times that we are hungry or angry or lonely or tired or whether we are victims of our own success, so that we might hold temptation at bay and at arm's length, so that we might be your child. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.